The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So lovely to start with the Buddha's words on loving kindness. And if we can really um, make them our usual abiding, make them where we're coming from, our lives will be transformed and they will be so much more pleasant and people will attract people and uh, situations to ourselves. And so very important quality, this loving kindness as part of the practice of the Buddhist teaching, important part, foundational. But I'm not talking about <laughs> loving kindness today or kindness. But what I'm going to, first of all, I was going to start with is just uh, that I will dedicate um, the merit for today to two monk, two friends of mine, monks in Sri Lanka, who passed away uh, in recent times. And the first one, uh, I think there'll be a photo, so you can just see what they, oh, I can see what they look like. So this is the first one. He was a friend. He's a, a German monk who was uh, lived in Sri Lanka or was ordained really for about 50-odd years, and he died at uh, age 80 due to COVID in Sri Lanka. And he died on the 1st of January. So not a good beginning of the year for him. Well, we don't know really, do we? <laughs> and it will be his three-month death anniversary on the 1st of April. So that's uh, coming soon, but I won't be here probably on the 1st of April. Don't know really. And so um, he had a very long life and, and uh, practicing the Dhamma. And the second monk I was going to dedicate merit to, and you can see here, is Venerable Pitipanna Chanda Nanda Tero. And he was only 54, but he was killed by an elephant uh, last Monday, that's uh, the 14th of March, on his way to his arms round in, near, uh, near Balangoda in Sri Lanka. So it does happen, monks get killed by elephants, and I've heard of other monks too. And uh, only yesterday I did hear some news that uh, this elephant, a friend of mine uh, sent this message and said this elephant had actually, they think it's the same elephant, had killed someone three years ago. So it's a bit of a track record. So thank you for that. And we'll be I'll be dedicating merit at the end of the meditation. Dedicating merit is like dedicating good karma, you know, of giving a talk, listening to a talk. Um, so this is... Uh, uh, what we can. The only thing we can take with us really is our karma. And uh, if these monks and uh, other relatives, your relatives and friends can be aware of it, and any being that actually can uh, benefit from the good karma of today, if they can get this happiness, this will be a great, uh, it will give them energy for their new life and maybe actually take them to a slightly, to a better rebirth if they need that. We hope they don't. <laughs> so... And today I'm actually going to speak about refuge, which I spoke about in January, but I spoke about it in, in terms, more general terms then, and today I'll speak in more specific terms. And uh, it's going to be, the theme is really, there's two titles for this talk, Finding Our Inner Refuge, and also uh, the other one is We Are All Refugees. <laughs> we Are All Refugees, and I'll relate that in a minute. So, and I mentioned in January what a refuge is, and I think everybody knows what a refuge is. It's a, a shelter or protection, isn't it? 
we have against the weather or dangerous conditions. But we take uh, refuge in many different uh, things. We take refuge in uh, people, in places, in uh, things we do. We take refuge in so many different things. I talk a little bit about that. That's what I talked about last time, actually. But also I think it's important to mention that refuge is really also a more, has a more positive sense, that we take refuge in things that we think are valuable. And that's where most people take their refuge in what they think is valuable. And uh, I will talk about that later. And of course, those things that are really valuable to us, if they're external, we can't take them with us. They can't really protect us. So the, the whole point of this talk is really to emphasize this internal uh, refuge, this internal protection of looking after our minds, developing our minds. And refuge is such an important thing, really. I think in these days of COVID and uh, the Ukraine, I think people really uh, can see that uh, how important it is. But really, too, I often when people are facing end-of-life uh, issues, we say this is when they're facing death, this is a very important, uh, can be a very important refuge for them, something that gives them uh, inner strength, and uh, something that they, um, it, as it were, points the mind in a particular direction and it reduces their fear, their worry. And, uh, and it also, when we take refuge, it, gives, it makes sense of what we're experiencing. You know, if we have a framework to look at what life is uh, um, dishing up to us, <laughs> so we can uh, use this refuge to look at and make sense of the world. And I liken that, as many, many Dhamma teachers do, to a foundation. Refuge is like a foundation. Because if a building has good foundations, has deep foundations, well-made foundations, it will withstand many difficult conditions, whether it be like the storms we had in June last year, even the earthquake. We had an earthquake, but not a big earthquake, and those sorts of situations. So if the foundation is good then the, uh, that building will be able to withstand whatever comes to a, to a large extent. And we're the same. If we've got a deep refuge, it will really uh, give us this uh, strength. And of course, the, the person who has the deepest refuge, who's that? Who do you think? The stream enterer the first stage of enlightenment, they say their, ref their uh, faith is unshakable. Because refuge, of course, it leads to faith. And faith is a, or confidence. Some people don't like the word faith <laughs> in the West. So conviction is another word too. And this is an important quality. But uh, I was going to mention, as I mentioned before, the other alternative title for this talk is that we're all refugees. And uh, one of the monks at Newbury reminded me that in Western Australia, there is a, a very nice Thai man, lovely Thai man, who would ask for the three refugees and, and the five precepts. <laughs> I thought that was really, really beautiful, actually. It's really lovely, three refugees. But in reality, we are. We are actually all refugees. Uh, we're seeking a safe haven. I mean, 
we're not in the Ukraine, but we are from going from life to life, you know, um, not always experiencing the uh, comfortable conditions, the stable conditions that we're experiencing here in Australia. Because you think of the people in the Ukraine in many parts of the world are having very, very difficult um, time. They're, they're, uh, yes, they're really looking for refuge. And of course, the reason that uh, samsara, you know, repeated rebirth, the cycle of birth and uh, old age, sickness and death, as we say, always say that, don't we in Buddhism? <laughs> we say that, is uh, of course it's fed by this impermanence, change, time just sweeps us away. And that's uh, mentioned in another one of the Buddha's teachings. And we're swept away by time, change and impermanence. But what we do in between being swept away is very important why we're being swept away. And that, of course, is where the Buddha's teaching focuses on the mind, what we can make of our present lives. And uh, I'm always think, I think of um, the, uh, this, this saying that the Buddha often had, mentions, and it reminds me of refugees because he says, we're hastening and hurrying through samsara fettered by our craving, our desire, our wanting, that's our alternative words, and blinded by ignorance. Blinded by ignorance of not knowing you know, what life is about, what conditions apply in reality. And of course, when we, we are hastening and hurrying through samsara, we're looking for a safe place. We're looking for some sort of permanent, some, some place that will last, which is why. Heaven is a very popular idea as a permanent sort of reality, but psychologically it doesn't really sort of hold water, but nevertheless as a permanent sort of uh, state of being, is it? Can you imagine being permanently happy? No, no uh, ups and downs. What would there be no comparison? There'd be no contrast in our lives. So therefore it would tend, as Ajahn Brahm often points out, anything that's continuous, the traffic, sound, or the traffic, whatever, we turn off to. After a while we say, I can't hear it. <laughs> so I would say in a heavenly existence, we'd probably turn off to it and think, well, it's just like this. <laughs> and it wouldn't be so blissful because a lot of our happiness comes from the ending of suffering, from some difficulty we're experiencing in life. But the main reason for mentioning about all of us being refugees is I saw a wonderful quotation from Ajahn Chah, about refugees, because in the 1970s, late 1970s, he was in Britain and he went to the US too. But he, while he was in Britain, he went over to France and he spoke to some, he went to visit a Thai monk there and he spoke to some refugees from Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam. And of course, this is the late 70s and they, t they told him of all the horrors that they'd experienced in their country, you know, their countries and how traumatised they were by it. And he had a very interesting, I think a very, very helpful uh, reply to them. This is part of it, there's more to it actually. And he said to them, give up thinking about it, you know, all the suffering that they have experienced. Things that have passed have passed, like the days that have gone by. Don't grasp onto them like thorns to pierce you. Look at, it, look at it as if you have been reborn. That's quite nice. Where is your home? Now it's right here. You have friends and family here. 
the place that you left, you have left wasn't really your home. If it was, then you could still live there. In fact, we have no real home in this world. Wherever we live, we simply create a convention that it is our home. But it's not really. Before long, we, move, we have to move on. So while you're here, put effort into being here. Make your life here. Make peace with being here. Isn't that lovely? That's really moving, actually. And you can imagine for these traumatized people, you know, and then we have plenty of traumatized people now, whether they be in the Ukraine and various other places throughout the world, you know, just to let go of, of the pain that they've experienced in the past so that the present and the, uh, the present can be, uh, they can be at peace with the present wherever they are. And this is really uh, so helpful, I think. And I'd like to just recap on what I talked about last time. So that wasn't so much. I didn't get this one in about the refugees last time, so, but I liked it very much. And I mentioned the verses, uh, the, the verses the Buddha uh, um, uttered, spoke about refuge. And I think these are very familiar because they're from the Dhammapada, the Dhammapada and the verse 188 and 189 to begin with, and the rest I'll read later. Driven only by fear do people go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. So... The Buddha is talking about where, you know, we can find a secure refuge, where, um, uh, and that these mountains, forests, parks, trees and shrines, they're not really a secure refuge. In fact, what's, uh, for modern uh, uh, people, they probably would think, well, what are they talking about? You know, parks, trees <laughs> and shrines? What does this mean? And of course, it's the idea that these are places where uh, devas, earth devas or spirits hang out. They live and that you can go there and make offerings and that those spirits or devas, those heavenly beings, will help you uh, whatever your request is, you know, whatever your problem is. And, of course, in Sri Lanka we still have uh, Devalias. These are shrines, and people are constantly going to them and uh, making offerings and asking for various things. Pass, I want to pass my exams, so, you know, I want to get through my operation, whatever it is. And strangely enough, I think quite often it works for them, but I'm not sure whether it's uh, the divine beings or just that strength and confidence they get in the mind. So that's... Uh, it's, that's very powerful, you know, what we believe can be very, very helpful. And, of course, this is like, do many of you remember Sujata who offered the milk rice to the, to the Buddha, the Lord Buddha, before his... Uh, he wasn't actually the Buddha then, he was the Bodhisattva. <laughs> so she offered this, thinking he was... A, uh, his, her maid first offered it, actually, thinking he was a tree spirit. And so she offered him this milk rice. And uh, in Sri Lanka, they call that kiribat, kiribat. So it's a very uh, a traditional dish, dish and popular. So um, unfortunately, she did because it gave the uh, Buddha, the Bodhisattva, the strength to achieve awakening, enlightenment. And so the, uh, this 
Refuge is so important for our faith. That's what I was really trying to emphasize in this first in that first talk. And it's uh, it really powers our practice. It really fuels our practice of the Dhamma. And because and people think, well, how is that? <laughs> how can that be? But we have this teaching on the five indriyas. These are the controlling factors. The Buddha talks about them mainly for stream enterers and beyond, but it's true for all of us that faith or conviction or, or confidence is what um, we get inspiration from. It gives us real inspiration. If we have deep faith, we'll get a lot of inspiration. And this bring, motivates us. And this brings up the second factor of the controlling, uh, controlling uh, faculties, and that's uh, virya. This is energy. Because if we have confidence or faith, no matter what it's in, we'll, we'll really get energy. And uh, often we have faith and confidence in many things that are not worth it, but nevertheless, <laughs> we'll get energy to do them. <laughs> and then when we have the energy to do them, of course, what happens? We can practice dhamma. You know, we may think, oh, it's worthwhile giving and sharing, that's dana. It's worthwhile keeping the precepts, the, the five precepts that uh, we took this morning. And so this really gives us the energy to practice. And one of the things that it does give us the energy to practice too is because we think, well, yes, you know, the dana and the, the um, ethical behavior, the morality, good, good. But developing the mind, that's very, very important. Because everybody realizes this is where our world comes from, the, the way we experience the world. There is a world out there, but the way we experience that world is coming from inside our minds. And so then the next factor, that energy of that practice, that energy that uh, we get from uh, virya, from, uh, the, from the faith, due to faith, is to practice mindfulness, to be aware, to be aware of what we're experiencing through the body and the mind. And that's both of those really important because, of course, the body we can learn a lot from and it can ground us in the present moment. It's very, as you know, we don't breathe in the past or the future, <laughs> even though our minds may be wandering off, the breath is still here in the present. And also to know the mind because this is part of the Buddha's uh, emphasis on mindfulness is to really know what's going on in outside ourselves. And this becomes... And when I uh, talk about the refuge in the Dhamma, this is really an important aspect of it, a refuge in mindfulness, knowing what's going on, actually. So, and of course, once mindfulness, mindfulness is really a focusing uh, of the mind, isn't it? It's really focusing more in the present, looking at uh, uh, what we're experiencing in the body and the mind. And when we practice that, then the mind begins to settle down. It begins to stabilize more and more. And this is the development of the next controlling faculty, which is uh, samadhi, we call it, or one-pointedness. This is when the mind comes together and that focus becomes even, even sharper and sharper, smaller and smaller, until it becomes one-pointed. And then, of course, uh, somebody who experiences that, they, go, they will... Uh, experience the jhanas, the deep meditations. They will experience incredible peace and joy, happiness that will clear the negative qualities in the mind. In order to go into that state, they will be gradually, gradually um, reducing, reducing. 
so that a person who is one-pointed, all the negative qualities of the mind, five hindrances, in meditation we call them the five hindrances, will be uh, suppressed, we say. They're not eliminated because they're still, uh, as it were, still there below the, the uh, in consciousness. But, and then, of course, when one comes out of uh, meditation, out of this one-pointedness, out of this stillness, this is what Ajahn Brahm calls it, <laughs> we can develop wisdom. Because the mind is really clear and perfectly um, able and powerful too to see what's really going on in life. And, of course, this is to see, you know, the nature of reality, which is always the same. You know, it's the, it's the fact of impermanence, change, uh, the unreliability of conditions, the instability of life. That's a permanent thing, actually. <laughs> and then also the unsatisfactoriness of life. You know, things can't, um, they can't satisfy us permanently. If there's no permanence, how could we have permanent satisfaction? One of the things that I often reflect on is that, A, the things that we're seeking satisfaction from, they're changing be it another person, be it our, our, our job, our meditation practice, whatever it is, it's changing. It will change. But not only that, our minds are changing moment by moment. So in other words, it's really, it's really quite impossible to have some, this sort of permanent sort of satisfaction, permanent happiness. But this is what people are looking for. And of course, what the Buddha is pointing to is uh, what do you think uh, permanent happiness would equate to? Nibbana, yeah. Once all the other conditions, once all conditions are finished. So this is uh, the developing of wisdom or understanding, you know, and about the nature of reality. But this faith, this uh, conviction, um, this confidence, it really fuels us to practice. Um, whether it be the Noble Eightfold Path, we think of that, or often we think of dana, sila, and bhavana. This is giving, sharing, and uh, ethical behaviour, and developing the mind. So these are uh, these are what will uh, will be practicing, what we'll focus on with that energy that we've developed from refuge. And of course, people think, I just mentioned in the last talk, so I should go on <laughs> briefly, that what is the danger that we are actually trying to find refuge from? And I did mention it really, it's rebirth, old age, sickness and death. They are the things that, the, that propelled the Buddha. But it's not only those physical um, aspects of rebirth, old age, sickness and death, it's also sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. So the Buddha is looking at the mind, the body, and the mind. You know, all the, the danger that comes from having a body and a mind. And not only that, just being reborn again and again and again <laughs> ad infinitum, actually, ad infinitum. We can't really... I think uh, there was a movie called Groundhog Day, something like that, and they had that theme. I never saw the movie, but I heard it had that theme that a person who was stuck in the same day over and over again... I thought, wow, that's a perfect uh, uh, metaphor for um, samsara, you know, being stuck. So, and of course, so when we 
they're the dangers that we are actually taking shelter from and not understanding the nature of reality is really the essence of, of uh, our, our suffering, our difficulties. And the things that we usually, I mentioned before, what we usually take refuge in and uh, value, uh, of course, the, the big one for, you see it everywhere, is our bodies. <laughs> People are taking refuge in their bodies. I mean, if you're any doubt about it, you look at all the shops, you look at the gyms, the beauty parlours, the, all the foods that we eat, and you know the protein drinks and everything is really aimed at looking after the body. But of course, as a refuge, one and everybody, everybody knows it has to eventually let us down. And the most beautiful, most handsome, most strong person in the world will end up with an old body, a body that's not functioning like it did when they were young, and that body will eventually die. So that's not a good area to, to, to invest in, but we do, we do. And we, of course, you know, the other areas we invest in are relationships with people, you know, whether it be our partners, whether it be our children, our friends, all these things are so important to us, and we take a refuge in them and uh, refuge in places, uh, places that we like, even holy places, you know, but people love to travel. And, uh, and of course, this is a big one of the big sufferings of COVID was being that we haven't been able to travel as much as people would like. And of course, a lot of these refuges are really, and you see it, can't you, um, a distraction actually, distracting ourselves from the difficulties of life taking a, you know, a bit of a relief, you could say. And of course, people take refuge in things and what the Buddha called the worldly conditions, loka dhammas. So gain and loss, getting, and the only interest in gain, actually, <laughs> getting things, you know, praise and blame, fame and anonymity and pleasure and pain. But our possessions, it really is talking about money, possessions, power, status, all those things. And uh, refuge in activities, we, we, we're very much, some people are workaholics, aren't they? But uh, we have many other activities. Sport is a big one. And I heard from Frank that the football started yesterday. So you can, you can tell people, uh, it is a refuge for them. And if they, they really miss it when, when it's not uh, possible to go. And there's so many things we take refuge in in terms of activities, eating, drinking, very big working, as I mentioned, and we can take refuge in our knowledge. And in the end, these sorts of refuges are all like our attachments, aren't they? The things we are clinging to, that's basically it. And the, I always love the Buddha's teaching because it sort of pairs it down, very, puts it very succinctly, very uh, simply, that it's sight, smells, taste, and touches, the five senses and the mind. That's it. <laughs> But of course, our attachments, one of the biggies that uh, is driving our lives, we take refuge in, is our idea of who we are. <laughs> who we are. And that can be just, you know, sometimes the, the, the things we take refuge in in terms of who we are are negatives. You know, you see people, we can, people who are identifying with their depressions, with their anxiety, all these things that we, we take to be who we are. And of course, you know, being the doer, doing stuff in the world, being the knower, as I mentioned, we can take refuge in our knowledge, all that we know. And of course, the big one is, uh, and I mention it again and again and again, is the views that we, we attach to. 
they, are, they we take refuge in those, whether it be about COVID, the Ukraine, Donald Trump, whoever it is. You know, there's so many. I listen to all these views and opinions. I think if you go on the internet, if you go on YouTube, you think, my goodness. <laughs> I often look at these things or read about them and I think, I would never have thought that. <laughs> you know, really, some of them are really unusual. And I think, wow. So these are all refuges. But why are they not secure refuges? That's what I was, the, the Buddha is mentioning in that Dhammapada verse, that these are not secure refuges at all. And they don't lead to the end of suffering at all. They actually often lead to more suffering. <laughs> but the reason that they are, are not secure refuges is because they're e in external refuges. They're not internal refuges. We can't take these things with us as much as we may like to, you know, take our relationships, uh, our partners, our friends, our children with us. I mean, some of the previous civilizations have tried that very idea, haven't they? They've buried their, their family, some of their family with them. And um, so we can't take them really with us. And in a real sense, we don't own them because they're changing, we're changing. What is there to own? <laughs> it's only temporary. <laughs> we're just looking after whatever we uh, own, as it were, in this world. They're impermanent. And they're only temporary. They're only temporary refuges. And, of course, they're subject, as I mentioned, to uh, change. But, of course, one thing we do take with us is our karma, you know, the good and the bad qualities we've developed in our lives. And I'd just like to mention the story of Wakili. Do people know of Wakili, Venerable Wakili? He's quite, quite famous. When you hear the, the quotation, you'll, you'll know it. But he was a very interesting person. When, his, when he was a layperson, he saw the, the Buddha and he became so enamored by the appearance of the Buddha, just being hanging out, watching the Buddha, looking at the Buddha all the time, never tiring of it. He decided to become a monk. He could do it full time. <laughs> and so he did. I don't know. And eventually, you know, the, I think the, the Buddha actually, you know, he was, he was uh, thinking, uh, was... He noticed, it must have been obvious, that Wakili was following him around all the time. And, you know, so he eventually he said to him that it's, a, it's not... He said that it wasn't... Uh, well, actually, I'll quote the actual quote. He said, enough, Wakili. <laughs> it's, probably thought, oh, my it's probably like the ultimate, you know, sort of groupies, you know, that follow people, these bands around. They used to use that term. But he said, enough, Wakili, Wakili. What is there to, be, to see in this, this translation is vile body, but foul body, unattractive, I think is okay. You know, he who sees, or the person who sees Dhamma Vakali sees me. Um, the person who sees me sees the Dhamma. Truly, seeing the Dhamma, one sees me. Seeing me, one sees the Dhamma. And you think, well, why did the Buddha say that to Wakili? Well, obviously, he was really stuck on external appearance. Obviously, for him, it was giving rise to a very, um, probably a lot of faith. And in fact, Wakili was one of the uh, foremost of the Buddha's uh, monk disciples in faith, resolved on faith. And there is one other story of him being on um, Mount Gijakuta, the, uh, the uh, vultures, Peak, Vulture's Peak. It's got a rock that looks a bit like a... It does look like a vulture, actually, at the top, where the Buddha had a kuti. kuti. 
And he was so he was despairing so much that he hadn't been able to see the Buddha because the Buddha actually sent him away at one stage. <laughs> he said, look, the rains retreat's coming, you go. <laughs> and uh, so he went there and he was about to throw himself off, the, off, off this rock or off the cliff, one of the cliffs there at this, on this mountain. And the Buddha appeared to him and said, because he was just about to throw himself, he said, come, Wakali. And he, he walked out of joy, had this sort of energy to actually levitate. <laughs> and so the story goes. And then he came down to where the Buddha was standing below the rock. So it's, it's probably quite a few meters actually dropped and came down. So this is external refuge, not an internal refuge. And we need, as the, the Buddha really emphasized in many, many places, we need to take that refuge within ourselves. I mean, we know we have that teaching on non-self, <laughs> but this is a different aspect of, of quality of the mind. And there's a lovely verse which I think goes well with this, this inner uh, refuge, internal refuge. Oneself indeed is one's own protector. What other protector could there be? Well, with self-discipline or restraint, one gains a protector hard to obtain. And I mean, it doesn't take Einstein to realize what the Buddha is talking about is really basically we have to practice. He can't do it for us. <laughs> We're the ones that actually have to walk the path. Even though the Buddha has pointed it out to us, uh, given us the Noble Eightfold Path, given us the, um, the path of practice, we have to, we're the ones that have to develop it. And this is so important. This is why faith, this internal quality of faith, conviction or confidence really gives us energy to practice the path. And so then um, the, uh, they talk about the refuge on the, in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and I'll continue the verses from the Dhammapada. So at least I'll have finished the verses <laughs> today. And this is verse number 190 from the Dhammapada. And it is... <laughs> Uh, with Buddha continues, but when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering and the Eightfold Path leading to the ending of suffering, this is a secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So, of course, you know, that's, a, that's when we, you know, we've practiced and we've, re, we've, we've practiced Noble Eightfold Path and we've realized the deep insights, the, the deep nature, the nature of reality, which uh, is mentioned in the Four Noble Truths, which is, you know, encapsulated really in the Four Noble Truths. So, now... And so just to talk a little bit about the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha as a refuge, you know, why people think, well, why would you, why go for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha? And of course, again, I'm, I'm mentioning that it's really internally that we, we need to go for refuge. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But of course, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha are in, in the world, in this very conventional world, the highest the noblest and the purest of qualities that we can experience in the world. They are reliable. And uh, 
often the, in the Buddha said, you know, why would somebody take, um, have faith in the Buddha? Because he is without desire, aversion and delusion. He's without fear. He says this to Saka, the, uh, the king of the Devas, when uh, um, he gives the iti piso verses, actually. So that's... Uh, and of course, the other aspect of taking refuge is that we all need uh, ideals, something to look up to, someone to look up to. And very interesting for me that the Buddha, uh, he's a bodhisattva, one of the Buddha, when he had just awakened... He thought, what can I look up to? What can I respect? And, and of course, he saw that he had really achieved, attained what is the pinnacle of possibilities for a human being. <laughs> so there's not much scope. And then he thought, I can look up to, I can respect the Dhamma, you know, the nature of reality. Uh, because in, uh, really, when a, a person uh, becomes awakened, they become Dhamma, their minds become Dhamma, they become in tune, a part of that reality. We all are, but we don't really realise the true nature of reality. We need to awaken to it. That's why we have this idea of awakening. It's quite good, isn't it? We're awakening from sleep. <laughs> so, And, of course, you know, this... Uh, the refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha gives us a path of practice. And uh, so it's really... And a and very important aspect of the ref, uh, the uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha is to reflect on them. And this is, this is where really we get the inspiration, you know, that gives us the energy and deepens our faith. This is where we get encouragement when it's difficult times, when we reflect on the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And of course, to just talk a little bit about the Buddha, um, yes, yeah, got to finish off, I think, soon. <laughs> no talk about the Buddha. There was, of course, there's a historical uh, Buddha, and he always mentions that he rediscovered the path. It's quite interesting, isn't it? He doesn't claim to be the unique discoverer of the path. In fact, he says that it was like a path to an ancient city, which he discovered. And that path to the ancient city, of course, Noble Eightfold Path. And he's emphasizing the fact that uh, a Buddha, Buddhas have arisen in the past and there have been other Buddhas before him. And it, I, I like to, to, it makes me think, well, you know, in a sense, a Buddha is not a personal, uh, like a person as such. It's, a, it's not a personal thing. Uh, it's a quality, it's a, a state that they develop, an understanding that they develop. And it reminded me of uh, one of the stories of uh, Dona, the, or Drona, the Brahmin, who met the, uh, the Buddha soon after his enlightenment. He was walking, he was going on a road, and he saw these strange footprints. They say it's got the, like a wheel print uh, on it, and he, tra he, he, he traced those to where the Buddha was sitting under a tree. And so he asked the Buddha, what are you? <laughs> Sounds very strange, doesn't it? What are you? <laughs> uh, and of course he says, are you a deva? Are you, you know, are you a human be being? Are you a yaka? All these things. And the Buddha says, no, no, not that. You know, he eliminates most of the possibilities in the uh, uh, cosmology of that time. But he says to Drona the Brahman, you can remember me as a Buddha, you know, someone that's uh, uh, attained 
a complete liberation from this uh, the cycle of birth and rebirth. Someone who's developed this wisdom, this understanding, become Dhamma. So, but oftentimes, and I see it uh, in uh, in Buddhist countries, it's quite common. They, the Buddha becomes almost a, uh, a not a human being, <laughs> becomes you know above us, you know above the human state. But of course, he was a human being, and that is the great miracle of the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, in early traditions, there's even an early school of uh, Buddhism called Lakutarabada, and this is sort of like the idea that the Buddha was some sort of transcendental being. He wasn't a human being, he was beyond it. And of course, if you have that idea, then you think, wow, I can't possibly do what he did. I can't possibly, well, maybe even think, I can't possibly walk that path, you know. And of course, that's not the idea of it, because the, the, the Buddha was there to live his life as an example out of compassion for us and for future generations. So it's very important that we emphasize his humanity too. Of course, I think when he became a Buddha, as he mentions, not really the same as any, any other human being. He became uh, this, a quality that was extraordinary. But this quality we can all develop. We have all got the seeds of that uh, quality within us that can awaken just given the right conditions, <laughs> it can awaken. And of course, this ties into um, the idea of awakening because when we say Buddha, you know, we say Buddha, the actual root word there is uh, from Bud, is uh, Bujati, Bujati. It's a Pali word. And it means to awaken. It's quite literally to awaken uh, or to become enlightened. But it also means to know, to recognize and to understand. And of course, this is the seed of awakening we all have. You know, it's a possibility. I often, you do hear that, and uh, of course, it's pretty obvious, if we didn't have that capability, if we didn't have that uh, uh, potential, we couldn't become awakened. And uh, sometimes you hear of Buddha nature. It's often in Mahayana they talk about Buddha nature. And I think that's going a bit too far. But we do have this, this seed of awakening. And uh, I know Buddha, the Buddha was asked on uh, various times, will all beings become enlightened? And he, he didn't answer really. <laughs> but it's very natural. They've got the quality, the potential, but the conditions have to be there. And uh, the interest has to be there. You see the number of people that practice the Buddha's teaching? Wow, that's really small when you compare it to 8 billion people. <laughs> so, so we have that potential, but whether we actualize that potential, realize that potential, that's up to us. That's where the, uh, uh, you know, where the, the refuge has to be internal. It's us who have to do the practice. And it's then, in a real sense, too, that uh, knowing is that uh, ability to stand back and to be aware of whatever we're experiencing in the present moment. This is the essence of mindfulness, isn't it, really? That knowing. And um, it's knowing of you know, our bodies, for sure, what we're doing, what we're saying, and what we're thinking. So it's quite a lot to be aware of. And one of the most important aspects of this Buddha or Bhujati being having this knowing is, of course, to know what's going on in our minds. 
This is this sort of self-awareness, you call it, actually, is very, very important. And because without it, we it's very difficult to practice. <laughs> it's called, sometimes they call it reflective awareness. I think this is what Ajahn Sumedho uses, reflective awareness. But it's a very important quality of what's happening. And uh, as I often say, maybe some other teacher has said this too, it enables us to see to see things rather than just to be things. What that means is we can actually see what's going on in the mind, but we don't have to immediately uh, react and do whatever that feeling, whatever that thought tells us. There is that gap, and that's the potential for us to develop insight about what's going on in this mind and in this body as well. And of course, without that sort of mindfulness, could we develop the precepts? Could we keep the precepts? I don't think so. <laughs> you may think afterwards, remember, oh, all oh, right. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have squatted that mosquito. I shouldn't have whatever. So it's uh, the essence of the path. With it, with it, without that quality of mindfulness, it's impossible to practice, really. We're just reacting automatically. We're on autopilot, as I've said before. So that's uh, talking about the, the Buddha. And of course, when we recollect the qualities of the Buddha, we often do the itipiso that we chanted. And we can use those for re uh, reflecting upon. That's, no, that's good. But we shouldn't feel limited just to them. Because there are many other qualities. You know, in, um, in Sri Lanka they have a chant saying that uh, the guna ananta, you know, endless qualities, you know, this, the boundless qualities that the, the Buddha had. So some of those qualities may be more, uh, uh, you may connect with better than, uh, than say, some of the itipiso uh, qualities and nine qualities of the Buddha. So that's uh, just to mention that. And, of course, I mentioned the Dhamma. Uh, all right, yes. And one of the things that I think is, uh, for me, is really good about reflecting on the Buddha is just gratitude. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that is a wonderful, a wholesome feeling. And that gives us, you know, gives us energy. You know, gratitude is, is, is free happiness, really. And it really brightens the mind. So if we have any uh, opportunity to be grateful, take it. Because <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to, to bring happiness into the mind. People miss it often, but nevertheless, you know, they think, you know, they just don't appreciate it, they don't notice it, they, and therefore they miss out on the happiness of actually acknowledging that somebody has done something good for them or, or some, some teaching has done good for them, has brought, some, brought them happiness. So very important is gratitude. So I'd just like to finish by saying, talking, I was going to talk about the Dhamma, <laughs> and uh, the refuge in uh, Dhamma, of course, is that we can practice the Dhamma and the Buddha mentions that uh, uh, the, the, the Dhamma is being a part of our refuge. Um, and of course, I'll, I'll read that out in a minute. But what we take refuge in when we practice the Dhamma is our good qualities, the qualities we develop in the mind. You know, whether it be generosity, virtue, you know, keeping ethical behavior, whether it be this faith, this kindness, metta, whether it patience, compassion, any of these good states. But of course, the, the one that the, uh, the Buddha mentions about, which one does he mention that we should take refuge in? Mindfulness. 
That's the one. And you know, you have that famous uh, quotation from the Buddha, therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with the, re the Dhamma... With the, uh, with the Dhamma as your island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does one live as an island unto oneself? And one abides contemplating the body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, having put away or hankering and fretting for the world. And likewise with feelings, mind and mind objects. So this is... This is how the Buddha encouraged us to develop our inner refuge, through mindfulness, knowing what's going on in ourselves. And of course, just to mention briefly, lastly, the Sangha. The Sangha, of course, is um, the enlightened Sangha, the awakened Sangha. That's usually the what we take refuge in. That's the highest. Um, and of course, that that gives us an encouragement that we can practice the path. The pra that the path actually leads to the goal, first of all. But and then, you know, some people say, "Well, you know, some of these arahants, these awakened beings, are very, you know, sublime and everything." But of course, some of the Buddha's disciples that became awakened. We have Angulimala, who was a serial killer, and um, uh, and Venerable Patachara when she met the Buddha, she was crazed, she was out of her mind after lots of personal tragedies in her life. And uh, Kisa Gotami, uh, Venerable Kisa Gotami, another nun, she was pretty much crazed at the time she met the Buddha too. So we can really be encouraged by their example that it's possible, that we're not too, we're not too hard a case. <laughs> Nobody's too hard a case. And so this is something that can really encourage us uh, the reflection on the Sangha. And I always think, you know, personally, you know, you think of the teachers we have in this life, you know, and I'm very, very fortunate to have had some very good teachers like Ayakima, Ajahn Brahm, Venerable Gunaratana, um, um, Sayadaw Utejaniya, those sorts of teachers. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And it's so important because the lived example is very uh, powerful for us, isn't it? When we meet somebody who's incredibly peaceful, incredibly wise, that has an impact <laughs> on us that will stay with us. And so this uh, taking of refuge uh, and recollecting the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha are really important. And it's for developing the mind. And the Buddha talks about in the recollections, they're called the Anusatis. We have the Buddha, Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, Sangha Nusati, uh, Chaga Nusati, um, and Sila Nusati, and so on. And this is like recollecting the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, recollecting the, our generosity that we've been giving and sharing, recollecting that we have uh, keeping ethical behavior. And when we do that, our defilements go down. This is what the Buddha mentions in a very, very often repeated formula actually and he said brings up inspiration for us which is going to trigger faith which triggers gladness in the mind and that brings on rapture this um, uh, mental experience that almost feels physical you know sometimes it can be tingling all over the body energy waves through the body whatever and then from that the buddha says that we can develop into tranquil the body becoming tranquil the mind becoming tranquil pasadi. And uh, and this is when 
people in meditation particularly can let fit, feel as if they've let go of the body totally. It's not there, which can be frightening, but it's actually quite a happiness too. And then happiness comes out of that, arises from that. And then the Buddha says one-pointedness, stillness comes from uh, that. And he says that such a person remains balanced without afflictions, through living, though living in a society that is out of balance and is suffering. So that's what we are aiming at. And of course, once one's developed one-pointedness, this samadhi, then we can develop the wisdom that sees things as they truly are. So just to finish there, to, to encourage us to develop this inner refuge, inner refuge, make that uh, seed of um, bud, of knowing, of awakening, uh, giving it, nourishing it, so that it grows in our lives, nourishes through practice of the Dhamma, and through that our path will develop of uh, faith and confidence, developing conviction, leading to this energy, leading uh, to a development of, of the precepts of mindfulness, this is the main one, and then of this one-pointedness and then wisdom. So this is what is on offer and this is the power of um, taking refuge within. And this is so, so important. The refuge outside, like Wakali, <laughs> is, not the, is not a secure refuge. And in the end, I think the Buddha got tired of that. <laughs> oh, enough, enough. <laughs> so I'd like to finish there. So if there are any uh, comments, questions, or complaints, as I often say, I don't get enough complaints. All right, yes, no problem. Anyone got a question, comment? about? Uh, it doesn't have to be only about uh, um, refuge or faith, whatever, anything. That's okay. Oh, yes, 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 Steve. Good morning, Arjun. Good morning. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'll just move this a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cool. Um, a couple of things you talked about today reminded me of something that I was a little unclear about. Um, Mm. So you've mentioned the the refuge of stream entry, mm -hmm. uh, and also mentioned um, the cultivation of merit through you know generosity, mm. virtue, and um, bhavana. Mm. Um, a video I'd watched from uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu mm. Ajahn mm. Jeff. Uh, yeah. He mentioned that um, you know, merit, I guess, is kind of misunderstood in, in mm. English because it's kind of sounds like brownie points. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, it does yeah. But he said a, a, another good translation is also uh, goodness. Goodness, and like yeah. We're, trying, we're basically trying to cultivate mm. goodness. And he mm. said that um, the practice of merit, when it, when it matures, it kind of cult, it culminates in stream entry. Mm. But I didn't quite understand what like the connection he was talking about. And I'd wondered if you'd yeah. heard that before and if you could maybe shed any light on that. Yeah, um, I guess it's a bit hard not actually showing you the video. But <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's one of the crucial qualities, you know, for uh, developing the path is uh, our goodness. You know, developing the good qualities by our through our body, speech, and mind for sure. And uh, when we talk about the qualities of the uh, stream entry, one of them is that they are very generous. Uh, 
uh, and uh, good. They're very good. They've got very high, uh, high ethical standards. And so this would be a quality. Whatever we develop that is a, um, a support for becoming uh, a stream enterer, and that would be one of them, because they say that a stream enterer has got the virtue or the ethical behaviour that's praised by the noble ones. So if we are practising ethical behaviour to a high degree, it's taking us towards that. If we are practising faith, if we're developing our faith in the Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha, it's taking us towards that unshakable faith that's there. Also, as I mentioned too, that stream enterers are also very generous people. So if we're practising dana and we really get into it, this is going towards that, uh, towards uh, developing uh, stream entry. Um, and of course, the, one of the important things is our understanding of wisdom. That's what really makes a stream entry, not, not necessarily their, uh, um, their ethical behaviour. Because it's what understanding the uh, Four Noble Truths, understanding that uh, impermanence really, you know, that things are really swept away, um, that uh, nothing lasts for very long. Um, that is what actually contributes to a person becoming a stream enterer because they, then they see non-self. And this is the crucial one, isn't it? You know, of seeing that, uh, they call it a personality view, identity view, Sakaya Ditti. Um, seeing that is really what makes a stream enterer uh, a stream enterer. But usually the supports of, of being, living virtuously, of being generous, of developing one's wisdom, there's a few other factors too that they, you can develop in order to uh, attain stream entry. But it's really that understanding that really makes one a stream enterer. It definitely supports it, yeah. He may have, yeah, yeah, he may have a different way of you know, sort of, uh, probably there's a bit there that he hasn't, hasn't told, <laughs> hasn't mentioned. We may have mentioned in other, other uh, contexts. Yeah, mm. yeah so, uh, no, that's interesting. But certainly that would support uh, the arising of stream entry, sotapanna or sotapati, mm. uh, you know, this uh, goodness, goodness. And I like, uh, I agree with you, merit is a term, even in English people look merit. <laughs> It's like does sound like those when I was a kid at school they used to have the elephant stamps, little rubber stamps you get on your assignments and all this sort of thing. So it does sound a bit like that. But of course it's good karma. Goodness is a very good a good way to talk about it. And it's the power of goodness. I think it's, it goes further. You can really um, you know take it a long way. And so, uh, and I know if you look at the verses of um, uh, in the Teragata, these are the verses of the enlightened monks, there's one monk there called Silavant. Uh, and he, if you read his verse, his morality, ethics, uh, ethical life was really nearly his whole path. And he had the insight and the wisdom that went with it towards the end of it. He mentions it. But he's talking about how wonderful, uh, you know, ethical behavior is and, and, you know, what a... All these, it's very beautiful verses, actually, if you read them in the Teragata, especially... Ajahn Sajato's translation, very nice, actually, beautiful. So it could be a vehicle for many... Oh, it is a vehicle for all of us, actually, mm. to some degree or other. So thank you for that. Thank you. I hope that answered a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Any other questions? Uh, Hi, Ajahn. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, um, you mentioned about the... 
um, development of the non-self mm. um, in the talk. Yeah. So I, um, I find that maybe you can elaborate more on how we can develop that because it's mm. very difficult. We grew up with our characteristics of mm. our self as, you know, um, with all our memories mm. and, you know, of the past. Yeah, so true. It's, it's very difficult to associate like the self from non-self. So yeah. I was thinking, yeah, like how do we encourage that more? Like how do we mm. like try to awaken? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, no, it's a good question. It's a big question. <laughs> big question. But it's uh, really, I think sometimes when people think of non-self, it really... Uh, creates a um, a, like a conundrum in their mind they think well well, you know uh, I feel quite selfish you know there's a self here not selfish but uh, you know there is a self you know and you feel it from your own experience and everything but what I say to people is there is something here um, but it's not a permanent uh, a permanent uh, personality not a permanent character that we are that we will always be and if you have that sort of understanding, it can help a lot. Um, because when we think of non-self, it just seems to be contradicting our very experience. <laughs> Everything is so self-oriented. You know, you know, somebody says something to us at work, and wow, we're really upset or we're really happy, or whatever, whatever they've said, depending on what they've said. So, you know, experience is pointing to the fact that there is, uh, you know, a personality and a character, but it's not permanent. See, this is the Nietzsche side of, of, uh, of reality. It's changing, and we can see it over a lifetime from when we were children um, and now. I mean, things we're interested in now, the views we have now, are so different from when we were a child. There is a feeling of sameness, which is, which is what uh, often the sense of self is uh, based on. But if we look at it, it's really changing, changing, changing. And so there is something here, definitely. And what we are aiming to do through our practice is actually to develop these good qualities that become our character, become our personality. So that, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, this is what an awakened one is. Their being just becomes Dhamma. You know, they're in accord with all these wholesome qualities from the nature of reality. So, you know, I think uh, this, this gives us a bit of understanding of, you know, um, this non-self. But there is something here, definitely there is. But we mistake it as a permanent uh, entity. And it is great relief when people see that this isn't the case. There isn't a permanent me in here that's running things um, and doing things that's changing due to all the influences we have, you know, whether it be the internet, whether it be our family, whether it be our education, whether it be our childhood, our parents, whatever. So many influences made us what we are now and are still shaping us, continuing to shape us. So... When we realize that there's no permanent me inside, then we can also think, ah, all those other people, there's no permanent uh, them in there. So then we stop blaming them so much for, you know, they're always going to be like that. They always say that, they always do that. Because we realize, yeah, they're just the same. You know, they're conditioned by so many factors. They're changing. They will be changing. I know some people don't seem to change very rapidly, I've heard. So some people tell me this, and I said, well, it's impossible. They won't change completely. So then we can stop blaming others too, and we can take their scoldings, their praise, whatever it is that we get from them, 
um, in a, a much lighter way, take the world in a much lighter way, see things as being conditioned, arising from causes and conditions, you know, arising, as it were, from karma is a conditioning uh, process, really. It's conditioning us, whether we're developing good things or negative things, <laughs> that will become the tendency of our personality, our character, and that's what we will take with us when we pass. When this body conks out, when it breaks down, then that, those qualities, whatever they were, will continue on, you know, will continue on to the next life, unless one's seen the Dhamma. So I don't know if there's... Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Big question. Yes. All oh, right, live good. I think we'd probably... Is this... Ajahn, my question's a short one. Yeah, good, good. But uh, first of all, gratitude for your Dharma talk. Oh, There's a you. lot to reflect on. But um, I was yeah. interested in the quote that you read of um, Ajahn Shah, and I was just wondering where I could find that to read that. It, I should have, yeah, I should have told you the uh, the reference for that. It's in his biography that Ajahn Jayasara wrote, and it's uh, I've got the got it here actually. Where is it? Right at the top. It's, a, it's in a chapter called, that's what I can read. Ah, here it is. Uh, one in front. Oh, I didn't write it down there. It's in a chapter on refugees, I think it is. It's, a, it's in, in the, towards the end of the biography. Okay. And uh, you can find it. If you look up refugees, it'll, it'll mention this teaching he gave to him. It's fantastic teaching. Yep. You know, it really speaks to us <laughs> just as much to this, as to those refugees. Okay. You know, so, thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. I often read Ajahn Chah's um, quotations. Think, wow, they really say it all. <laughs> you know, and they go deep, don't they? They really go deep when you read them, and you think, yeah, that says it all. <laughs> so, thank you for that. There we are. And. Ajahn, we've got uh, four online questions and one a person wondering what's happened to the Nazaruddin stories as well. So. Oh, right. I had a Nazaruddin story actually that I was, I was going to mention. I'll tell you the Nazaruddin story. <laughs> I was, this is, uh, uh, Nazaruddin, one day he was, um, his neighbour came over and said, Nazaruddin, can I borrow your donkey? I have a need to, for a donkey. Nazarene said, oh, sorry, 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 I've lent my donkey already. And then the donkey neighed, was still there in the backyard or wherever it was, stable. And the neighbour said, I thought you said the donkey, uh, you'd lent the donkey to somebody else today. And he said, and then Nazarene, being Nazarene, said, who do you believe, a donkey or your teacher? <laughs> and the next comment I have with that is, fortunately, the Buddha wasn't that sort of teacher. Because <laughs> what, he, what he said, he did. What he did, he said. He mentions that as a quality of the Tathagata. So this is, uh, we were very lucky. <laughs> but Nazarudin, very funny. I thought, wow. So there we are, Nazarudin's story. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay, so first question, we may not get to all of these questions. Uh, first question here is, I'm fairly new to Buddhism and mm. I would really like to introduce meditation and the foundations of Buddhism to my children who are aged six and under. Mm -hmm. Are there any recourses to help me achieve this? Yeah, I'm sure there are, you know, on the internet and uh, um, there are teaching meditation for children, mindfulness mindfulness for children. There's uh, 
Venerable Damajiva has a, a, a mindfulness for schools, or the school of mindfulness, you know, that he teaches in Sri Lanka, and they're teaching throughout the world. So there's, and of course, if you if they look on the internet, they'll see quite a few teachers that are teaching mindfulness for children, and it always has to be very based in experience, <laughs> otherwise the children, it can't be a sort of abstract uh, talk or whatever on uh, mindfulness, it has to be experiential there and then. So if they just look on the internet, I think they will find quite a bit. I hope that helps. And I think it's very good that you do that, you know, that you introduce them to meditation and to give them a framework too for their life. You know, some of the principles of the, the Buddha's teaching very helpful for, for children to make sense of the world that they live in. Mindfulness is good, but it's even better with the context that uh, it fits, that comes from, basically, <laughs> which is the Buddha's teaching. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Our second question is, what is the difference between taking refuges and caring, for example, the mm. body? Is it accepting impermanence? Oh, right, right, yes. Um, yeah, we taking refuge, and when I said, you know, we can't take refuge in the body, we still have to look after it, take care of it, for sure. Otherwise, it won't last. It'll, it'll be even more impermanent than it may have been otherwise. You know, we do our best to look after it. And, you know, this is uh, the part of having a body, is you realise how much time we put into maintaining the body, feeding the body, putting it to bed, taking it to the toilet... You know, you name it, we're doing it. <laughs> we take it to the gym if we want it to look good. or It's healthy too, and many other things. So, uh, no, we, taking care of the body is, uh, it's, it is compassion for ourselves, actually. That's a good quality. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Oh, I like this one. How can I introduce Buddhism to my husband who respects my Buddhism but does not partake in it? He does not know the peace and happiness that accompanies Buddhism. How can I help him see? Wow, that's a yes, yes. How to, uh, yeah. I think the, the very best way, I think everybody here would think of it too, is be an example. <laughs> if he sees that you are happy and he says you're really joyful and you're handling things so well and you've got um, patience, uh, you know, and you're kind. Or in many, many different qualities. I think he will think, like many people do, I want some of that. <laughs> and that will be the way. It's not by preaching to people, that's for sure. You know, you want to put anybody off uh, Buddhism, and I think many parents make this mistake actually of preaching to their children. <laughs> It'll put them right off. But if they're good examples, if you're a good example, then your husband will think, I want some of that. And we'll look into it. So I think that's that is uh, the the only way, you know, definitely to uh, encourage him. So I hope give it a go. Maybe he is even, you know, he is even being impressed, even though you may not know, you know. So he's probably leaning in that direction. Could be, yeah. Mm. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, next question is: How do we take refuge in the sangha? When we do not have access to a local to local teachers or practitioners, all mm. oh, right. How do we take refuge in a sangha when we don't have a sangha, as it were, nearby? Yeah. Well, we can take refuge in the sangha in the sense of those teachers that we know of through the internet, through 
um, uh, books and things like that. It's not the same as actually um, taking a, a sangha that you are a, a monk or a nun that you know personally. That's quite different. Um, but of course, we can take refuge in the, the monks and nuns of the time of the Buddha, the sangha that existed then, the Arya sangha. The important thing, of course, I mentioned before was that it is the awakened sangha. <laughs> monks and nuns, uh, we we are preserving the Buddha's teaching, passing it on and practicing the Buddha's teaching, hopefully, and practicing the Buddha's teaching to become awakened. But um, we're not, if, if we're not Aryans, if we're not uh, fully awakened, we're not the actual refuge that the Buddha is talking about. And I should say that not only was it monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha, the Arya Sangha really also includes the lay people that were enlightened at the time of the Buddha. And there were some that were uh, very, you know, uh, uh, anagamis and, uh, and uh, maybe at death realized uh, a full awakening, arahantship. And uh, there's some interesting story. I think it's Chitta, the householder. Sometimes the monks would come to him and he, they would give him a talk. But if he knew more than them, which probably was quite often, he'd give them a talk. <laughs> Because the Dhamma is quite impersonal, really. And I mean, the Sangha is a convention. And the, uh, the, the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha can be conventions. And people can take um, the refuges as a convention. You know, we do all the time in Buddhist countries. But when, if we're really going to take refuge, it's going deeper than that. And uh, so, you know, this is... But it's the Arya Sangha. Yeah, so um, I think can, can perhaps do, uh, as I mentioned those teachers that have uh, become awakened in the past, you know, in, in the Buddha's teaching, we, we hear stories of them. I'd recommend The Great Disciples of the Buddha. It's a really wonderful book. <laughs> that will bring alive a lot of the um, noble disciples of the Buddha's time. And teachers now too, because a lived example is good. But you don't know for sure, are they enlightened or not? Who knows? You, the only way you really will know is if you live with them, if you're around them, and then you see them in different situations. And even the Buddha himself, he said, check me out. <laughs> he wrote, a, he spoke a sutta, he didn't write it, the Vimanksika Sutta in the Majjhimanikaya Middle-Length Discourses, Sutta number 47, how to investigate the Buddha. Now that's incredible, that's amazing. So when you live with a person, he often mentions if you live with a person for a long time, you'll see their qualities. You'll see if there are defilements there. Um, and that will be um, you know, how you can gauge whether a person is awakened or not. But that's difficult. <laughs> so hopefully that has been of some help. And uh, yeah, thank you. No more questions. All right. Now I'd like to do the uh, dedication of merit that I mentioned just briefly. And when I'm doing this, please, please, you know, think of your relatives, your friends, uh, your fa uh, your uh, um, people you know, um, and we can dedicate. You can dedicate merit to them because you've listened to this talk, and that is a source of goodness. There we are. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's an important source of goodness. Our understanding. So this is for Venerable German Jana Ramat, who was 80, passed away uh, three months ago, almost, and uh, Venerable Pitipanna Chandananda, who was killed by the elephant last week. 
Thank you for uh, participating in this talk today, listening to this talk, watching this talk. And now, for those who would like, we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, seeing as we were talking about refuge. (laughs) 